Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I think some of you know this, that part of becoming a Lutheran pastor is a one-year internship, which is what Joe's on right now, right? Uh, for mine, I was up at a church in Arroyo Grande, which is right up on the central coast. And I ended up renting an apartment that year just 10 minutes away in a little town called Pismo Beach. Uh, which if you've ever been to Pismo Beach, I love it up there. And the thing about that apartment is from the for- front door, you could walk down to the pier in probably five minutes max, uh, which was great. You'd go to bed at night, you could hear the waves crashing on the shore. You see, what became kind of my nightly routine is right after dinner, I would put my shoes on and I would walk down to the pier to watch the sunset. I would say probably like five, six nights a week I did that. And so this one night in particular, I get down there and there's a group of about eight to 10 men and women combined, uh, not just men, anyway, eight, eight to 10 people um, walking around with Bibles. And from what I could tell by the looks of it, they were trying to evangelize people. Um, One thing I'll say about this, I think almost anyone, if they see this coming, they are running the other way, right? Like, I came for the beach, not the Bible. I'm out of here. That is like 99% of the population. And yet, honest confession, I'm part of that 1% who's just totally game. I I like relish this sort of thing. I think I'm pretty much every Jehovah's Witness dream. And so on this one particular night, I'm standing on the pier. This guy from the group, he comes walking up to me. And as he gets close, the very first thing he says to me, he goes, hey man, have you been born again? Which I got to be honest, like even though I like this sort of thing, I'm kind of taken aback. That's like a very intense first question. And so what I said is something like, trying to kind of make my case, right? Like, yeah, I'm going to seminary right now. I'm doing my internship year up here. I'm preparing to become a pastor. And literally mid-sentence, he cuts me off and he goes, bro, that wasn't my question. (laughs) He literally broed me. And I was like, and then he said something along the lines of, you can go to church and not be born again, right? Which, touche, yeah, those two things aren't necessarily one and the same thing, right? We, I think we'd agree with that. And yeah, I wanted to be like, hold on, time out. Um, how's this working for you today? Like, all right, like getting a lot of converts, like batting a high, no, right? Anyway, I did not say that, uh, but you see what eventually ensued after the dust of the initial questioning settled, uh, we ended up having about a 30-minute conversation about what it means to be born again. And so just to get us thinking about this this morning, what do you think it means to be born again? Maybe you've heard that phrase, right? It actually comes straight from the Bible. It's from John 3. Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. So it's kind of important, right? It's absolutely necessary. Uh, And yet when someone says they're a quote-unquote born-again Christian, what are they talking about? Uh, So most of the time, at least in American Christianity, the way we use that phrase, born again, is almost always in reference to some sort of conversion experience. And in particular, it's a conversion experience in which there's often some sort of dramatic deliverance from something. For instance, you were caught up in a sin. You couldn't get out for years and just, God spoke to you, came in and he set you free. You were walking in a particular direction. It was not good. And yet all of a sudden God intervened. He totally turned you around. Your eyes were blind. Your heart was hard. Your will was not open to the Lord. And yet you heard his voice. And in just one brief moment, everything changed. You were, what, in that moment? You were born again. 
And so a born-again Christian, at least the way we use it typically, uh, is someone who's come to faith in a way that is utterly and instantaneously transformative. And if I can say two things about that. Uh, One is it is spot on as a definition. Absolutely spot on. I know we're sitting here like, wait a second, we're Lutherans. No, wait, wait, wait. that's not us. Have you seen our worship? Like, yeah. I'm supposed to be making fun of us, by the way. Anyway. Oh, we're the frozen chosen, right? Is like, I think that's either us or Presbyterians. But um, anyway, <laughs> but what I want to say in response to that is, it is absolutely biblical, that view of being born again. And what is the Lutheran movement after all, if not a return to the Bible, guys? And so this is completely valid. In fact, if you just think about the Apostle Paul for a second, dramatic deliverance was his story. A road to Damascus, totally blind, going one way, and yet what happened on that road? Christ intervened. He opened his eyes, turned him around. Literally in just one brief moment, everything changed for Paul. And the thing is, I bet if we could ask him, what he would say happened on that road is he was born again, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, which is something he actually did say, just capturing this idea, right? And so that's one thing I want to say about these conversion experiences, or that that is definitely how some people are born again. Now, here's the other thing. That's not how all people are born again, which I think is where we totally go wrong in our talk about this. But you see, a big reason we think this, as just a side note, the the way we think this way about being born again is the American church in particular has been deeply formed by something called revivalism. If you're not familiar with that, uh, what I mean by that is these great awakenings that have happened in this country where masses of people have come to faith in very dramatic ways, uh, which by the way, it's a great thing. I've heard Lutherans say like, that's not good. Look, what are you talking about? You're like poo-pooing the work of the Holy Spirit. It's weird. Uh, anyway, um, it's a great thing. And yet what, seems to, what it seems to have kind of led to is the false conclusion that that is the only valid way of being reborn. And yet here's what I want to say about that. No, it's not. That's not true. And in fact, the two pillars of the early church were Paul whose story was definitely one of dramatic deliverance, but the other pillar of the early church was Peter, whose story was much more marked by gradual growth. And the thing is about both of them, by the end of their life, both of them had been totally transformed, meaning both of them had been born again. And so you see, I would contend on the basis of the Bible itself and also on early church history that at different points of our life, God uses both of those things, right? Both dramatic moments of deliverance, also gradual movements of growth. Uses both of them over the course of our life to give us new birth, the goal of which is by the end of our life, we will have been totally transformed. Born again is the language, which I think we ought to see less as a single moment and more is a lifelong movement with of course the possibility of dramatic moments right? for sure but also maybe more so full of gradual movements which together constitute the process by which we become reborn uh, so what we're going to do for the rest of this is we're going to be in that passage that I read at the beginning it's all about Peter right um, Peter's gradual growth. 
or what I'm calling Peter's gradual growth into the image of Christ, that is. And so what I want to look at is what the passage says about how that happens. In other words, what are the means by which God gives us growth, makes us a new person altogether? Uh, So just to get right into it, maybe the first thing or main thing you see in this passage uh, is Jesus asked Peter the same question three different times, right? Three different times. It's, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And you see what it says about that is that by the time Jesus gets to the third question, Peter, do you love me? Peter is, quote, grieved by it. He's grieved. And the thing about that, the reason he's grieved, it's not just because Jesus is asking too much. Right? Peter's thought is not, oh my goodness, why don't you believe me? I'm so hurt, right? Not what he's thinking, right? Uh, You see, it's not that three times is too much. It's that three times is just right. And what I mean by that in particular is it's just right for for recalling what had just happened. See, what this comes on the heels of is Peter's denial of Christ. And how many times did Peter deny knowing Christ? Three times. It's, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And so what does Christ do? He asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. And you see what Jesus is doing in our passage is he is recalling Peter's failure. Which I kind of think begs the question, why in the world would he do that? Right? I mean, just to put it out there, is not Jesus the kind of savior who just forgives and forgets? And doesn't he want us as his saved people to just forget and move on, right? No. That's what I would suggest. And one thing we see in the passage is Jesus actually wants to revisit our specific failures. And he wants to re-examine our particular follies. And he wants to recall our actual errors. And I know all of this sounds very weird. But you could actually say that Jesus literally likes to dwell on your sins. And it's like, why? Why? What's good about that? So kind of random, but when I was a kid, one of my close friends, his family got this new dog. It was this really cute golden retriever puppy. They named him Charlie. That's his name. And the one thing, I don't remember much about Charlie at all. The one thing I remember about Charlie, however, is like pretty much every puppy in the history of the world, Charlie went to the bathroom all over the house. Which, like I said, totally normal, right? For puppies. And yet whenever he did, my friend's mom would flip her lid. Like she would get so incredibly mad at the dog. And this image will never leave my mind. I feel like I'm like traumatized by it. Uh, What she would do is she would take the dog's face and she would put the nose right up into the pile. And she'd say, bad dog, like bad. And she's like crazy. And you see, the reason she did that from what I could tell, I never had the guts to ask her, uh, is she she either wanted to scare or maybe even shame the dog into exhibiting better behavior. As if she wanted Charlie to just think like, oh, I guess I shouldn't do that anymore. Like, it's not going to happen, right? Uh, Which, by the way, uh, that tactic almost always backfired, if only because the dog would get really scared and then it would just go all over again. Like, it's not working, lady, right? Anyway, the reason I bring this up, uh, the reason I bring this up, that is the exact opposite of Jesus' goal in bringing up our sin. He brings up Peter's sin, right? There's no mistake about that. But you see, it is emphatically not because he's trying to rub his nose in it. In fact, he has literally no interest in just shaming us into better behavior. It'll almost always backfire if someone tries to do that to you. 
Uh, And so even though he does like to dwell on our sins, it is not to beat us up for it. It is rather to set us free from it. Uh, So let me try to explain that on how dwelling on our sin can actually be liberating. Sounds weird, but it can liberate us. Uh, So one of the things they used to say in the ancient world, which they got it from Aristotle, it wasn't a direct quote from him, uh, but the teaching is kind of his idea. Uh, But what they would say is, you are what you repeatedly do. You are what you repeatedly do. And what they meant by that uh, is if you do something over and over and over again, it'll develop something inside of you that they called a habitus. That's where we get the word habit, right? And what they went by that word habitus, it's a disposition of your heart, or maybe even better, it's a bent of your will toward a particular something. And the way it develops is you do something over and over again, all the way to the point that it now feels like you have to do it. And so what they would say is you can't just do something over and over again and expect nothing inside of you to change, right? But instead, as you do something over and over again, it becomes a habitus of heart or a habit of heart. And the greatest habits of your heart constitute your identity. You and I are just a bundle of habits is what they would say. So for instance, just to put some flesh on this, if you think of someone who's an alcoholic, uh, it's not like someone starts out as an alcoholic and then they go out looking for drinks. Like, Better find a bar. That's not how it works, right? Instead, uh, the way that it works is maybe one night you have a couple of drinks and you kind of like it. And then a couple nights later, you have a couple of drinks again and you like it even more. And then a couple nights later, the same thing again. And then a little, over a little bit of time, every couple nights turns into every single night, which eventually becomes, it's kind of a rule for you. You've got to have a drink before you go to bed at night. Uh, perhaps you don't even want to be away from the house anymore. Your whole life begins to revolve around it. Everything begins to fall apart all the way to the point that one night you find yourself at an AA meeting saying, hi, my name is Garrett. I'll put my name in. My name is Garrett, and I'm an alcoholic. In other words, it's become my identity. Why? Not because you were born an alcoholic, although there is a fundamental predisposition to such things, but you're not born that way. Uh, But because you have been drinking so repeatedly, and the thing is, you are what you repeatedly do. Another one, one of the guys that grew up in our circle of friends, he and his longtime girlfriend got married right after we graduated college, which is great. She's a really great girl. We all liked her. And yet in our 20s, we started noticing that whenever we went out as a group of guys, uh, this guy would be checking out all the other girls who were out. The thing is, at first, it was just kind of infrequent. He had a little bit of a wandering eye, you could say. Uh, and yet over time, it seemed like the guy, I have a hard time not saying his name. Uh, it seemed like the guy literally could not help himself. He would try to hide it, you could tell, but we would catch him just totally staring at girls, which eventually turned into absolutely flirting with girls, which made all of us really uncomfortable, right? Which made me think of something my grandma would say. Uh, she would say if there was a guy who was kind of flirtatious, she'd say, oh, that man's a philanderer. Which, if you don't know the definition of that word, it sounds like kind of a fun thing to be, doesn't it? Like, I'm a philanderer. Like, yeah. It's like fun and silly, right? Uh, and yet, what it literally means, philo means love, andrew means man, so literally lover man, which also doesn't sound that bad. But you say, what it's describing is a man whose love is like a river that cannot stay within its banks. And so instead of being something that brings life to the world around it, which is what a river should do, it ends up destroying everyone and everything in its path. 
And so you see, for our friend, what started out as just the occasional wandering eye eventually turned into him cheating on his wife multiple times. In which case, I think the biblical word would be an adulterer. And yet even that implies just a one-time act. Whereas for this guy, it was a perpetual bent of his heart. He was in fact a philanderer. And not that he started out his marriage that way at all, but he just gave into the thought so many times that it became who he was. You see, because you are what you repeatedly do. Last one, you go to Peter in our passage. And we touched on this a little bit last week. And we were saying that Peter is just your classic people pleaser. Uh, Christ gets put on trial and never mind how bold and brash Peter was the rest of the gospels. In the face of human opinion, he just starts telling other people what, exactly what they want to hear. And you see, the thing about that, no one starts out that way. No one. No one's born a people pleaser. You think about little kids in particular. They will say some of the most brutally honest things with absolutely no regard for human opinion. It's a show, right? Kids say the darndest things. There's a reason it works. And yet at a particular point, or more likely at multiple points along the way, we develop some sort of underlying insecurity about ourselves. In other words, someone wounded us is what modern psychology has pointed out with pinpoint accuracy. You see, the salve on that wound of insecurity is always some sort of attention, affection, or even just compliments. Which the second you get it, it feels good. In which case, you try to get it again, and the more you get it, the more you want it. And the more than just wanting it more, it becomes a habit of your heart, a pattern of your mind, a bent of your will, what the ancients called a habitus. That that has developed so deeply within us that the kid who used to have the freest mind and used to say the craziest things as an adult doesn't even know what he thinks anymore and says only things that are socially acceptable. In other words, people pleaser. That's what Peter had become. And so you see, the way the human heart is, is we can't just do something repeatedly and not expect to change internally. I mean, nor can we just stop doing it. Instead, you do something repeatedly and it becomes who you are. Again, why? Because you are what you repeatedly do, is the ancient saying, which I think still totally holds true for today. And that the question that we want to ask is, is there a way to break free from that? In other words, once that habitus of heart or that bent of will has developed, is there a way to change? Can an alcoholic stop drinking? Can a philanderer stop looking? Can a people pleaser stop caring so much what other people think? And mind you, not just in a way that we modify our outward behavior or put restraints all over it, but heart of hearts, the habitus inside of us is different. All of which is just really getting at the question, can we be born again? So this is going to seem like kind of a random reference, but have you ever seen the movie, has anyone seen the movie Groundhog Day? Um, I was telling Christy I was going to share about Groundhog Day. She's like, all your references are from the 80s or 90s. It's like, I feel like 1995, I went into a cave and never came out. Anyway, uh, Groundhog Day, it's a great movie. I feel like it's a classic. Um, Bill Murray's the main actor. 
uh, came out in 1993, I think I said that. Um, and kind of the general plot or premise of the movie is this guy named Phil, who's played by Bill Murray. It's Phil Connors is the guy's name. He's a weatherman from Pittsburgh who's covering Groundhog Day from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. And you see me, he, uh, he is totally miserable about being given this assignment, which you've been to Punxsutawney, you know why. He lived in Pittsburgh six years. Sorry, uh, he doesn't want to be there. He's kind of complaining about it. And yet what happens, you know the movie, he gets caught in a time loop or a time trap, you could call it, where every day he wakes up and it is still Groundhog Day, February 2nd. And the second he wakes up every single day playing on the radio, if you remember this movie, it's I got you, babe, bum, 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 bum. every single morning, which I don't know how you feel about Sonny and Cher, but it feels like the producers are hinting at the fact that he's waking up in some sort of hell. <laughs> Where every day is exactly the same. And everything is utterly predictable. And you want it to change, but you can't get out. All of which is a deeply philosophical statement about life. If not also a deeply theological statement about sin. Day after day week after week, year after year, it's like we can't get out, right? Now, here's the thing about it. If you've seen the movie, what is it that sets him free? How does he get out of his groundhog day? He falls in love, right? Falls in love. The thing is, the second he encounters real love, he wakes up the next morning and it's I got you, babe. And so he's like, oh no, I'm still trapped. But then everything after that is totally different. It's no longer Groundhog Day. It's February 3rd, which means it's a new day. And in particular, he is free for his life to finally move forward. And so here's the thing about this. Go to our passage, Peter the People Pleaser. Right? Uh, he's been doing the same thing day after day, week after week, year after year, probably for decades. And yet, what does Christ ask him? Now, how many times does he ask him? I want to focus on the content of the question itself. Uh, what does he ask him? He asks him, Peter, do you love me more than these? And you see, by saying not just, Peter, do you love me, but do you love me more than these? What he's asking is, do you love me more than human opinion? Or for the alcoholic, the question would be, do you love me more than having drinks? For the flander, it would be, do you love me more than lusting after other women? You see, because the way to really change, the way to get out of your groundhog day is to love something more than all these other things that tend to rule and reign over our hearts. And so the way to be free, if you think about this as a process, you revisit your sins in the presence of Christ. You recall your folly. You do not hide your failures. You expose your idols. You bring your fallen thoughts. You bring your foolish habits. You bring all of it into the presence of Christ. And then you declare it over them. I love Jesus more. More than getting buzzed, more than getting off, more than getting people to like me, whatever idol I have worshiped, I love Jesus more than that. You could ask like, why? Uh, because he loved me first would be Peter's answer. Uh, meaning love for Christ isn't something we just kind of muster up inside of us. It's not going to work. But instead for Peter, it was in the midst of denying him. He saw the face of Christ on the cross. They locked eyes is what it says. And in that moment, he saw the life. He saw the love. 
He saw everything that was poured out for his sake, the freedom that he could now walk in, the grace that he could now have, the radiance that could emanate from his life. That's what he saw in the person and work of Jesus. And you see, all of it was way more attractive than what he had been living for. And so in our passage, when Jesus asks him repeatedly, do you love me more than these? He's giving the chance to Peter to claim a new identity, uh, to declare something that's going to shape and shift his soul. That this might've been me, yeah, probably still gonna struggle with the habitus. It doesn't change in an instant most of the time. However, I reject it. It is not my identity. I love Christ more. That's my identity. Could you say that? You see, because whereas the old rule is you are what you repeatedly do, the good news about our identity in the gospel is you become what you most deeply love. And so do you love him more than these? Is what he's asking. Whatever these are for you. Do you love Christ more? And can you declare it in truth over whatever groundhog day you're stuck in right now? So this past Wednesday, kind of wrap things up. This past Wednesday was our last night of First Communion preparation. And one of the things we did is we had a little fire right outside the youth center. If you see a trash can that's got some marks in it, you'll know why. Anyway. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think it was providential that we did that. And what I mean by that is in today's reading, it seems like kind of a minor detail, but the place in which counter, uh, Peter encounters Christ is where? Standing over a charcoal fire is what it says. And the thing about that, maybe you remember this, but the last time Peter had stood at a charcoal fire was when? crucifixion of Christ, denying him repeatedly. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And yet today's passage, another fire, and it's, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the thing about this, one of the most consistent teachings in the Old Testament is that the love that God has for his people is an all-consuming fire. Meaning anything that would get between him and us, he wants to burn up and consume. And so you see, that is precisely what is happening with Peter. Jesus is bringing up and then burning away the sin that has separated Peter from him. Uh, And so on Wednesday, what we did around that fire together is we wrote down a confession. Sounds very Catholic, right? Down a confession. Um, We brought our sin into the presence of God. And it was two things that we named. There are almost always two categories of sin. Uh, It was either, these are the things that I have loved and lived for that are not God. So first, and then second, these are the ways I have hurt or wronged the people God has put around me. So either sins against God or sins against others. And what we did with those confessions is we made copies that I'd like to read to you right now. Just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Just making sure you're still awake, right? Ah, it's a long sermon. Uh, no, that's not what we did. Uh, we chucked those things in the fire and we watched them burn. We watched them burn. 
The point of which was to convey that this is in fact the Christian life. That it's about being in the presence of Christ, not hiding, right? But being in the presence of Christ as he lovingly brings up and burns away whatever has separated us from him. And sometimes that will cause a dramatic deliverance from something. Other times it will be just gradual growth that God gives us. But either way, they are both part of the total transformation that Jesus calls being born again. Which is a work that he does. Just to emphasize something, it's a work that he does. Quite often at the fire of love that we call communion. And so my prayer for our first communicants this morning, but I hope it extends to all of us, is let this not be a meal with no meaning but rather a gift of God in his glory. Let's pray as our worship team comes forward. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. uh, Who came to give us a new birth, uh, to form inside of us his own presence, uh, his image, and that we would bear that to the world around us. Uh, We pray, Lord God, that as we come to this table of communion this morning, that you would give us grace to be open and honest before you and to open our hands and release everything that's held us back from you. Lord God, fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.